Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we talk with Dr. David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates about the importance to engineering professionals of being skilled in noticing, listening, and questioning. Now, I'm sure that some of our listeners will find this way too touchy-feely, and please, can we get back to the nuts and bolts of engineering stuff? But I'll note that uh, Dr. Goldberg is no lightweight uh, to the engineering profession. He received his Ph.D. in civil engineering in 1983 from the University of Michigan. He moved on uh, during his academic career to the University of Illinois, where in 2003 he was appointed as the first holder of the Jerry S. Dobrovolvny Professorship in Entrepreneurial Engineering. And he is the author of Genetic Algorithms in Search, Optimization, and Machine Learning, one of the most cited books in computer science. So I encourage our listeners to take in Dr. Goldberg's advice with an open mind, maybe try a few of his ideas, and see what you think. At the very least, you'll better understand what it means to be a mindful engineer. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 129, Noticing, April 10th, 2017. So, Brian, does Lincoln look to the left or to the right on the U.S. penny? Uh, to the left. Are you sure? Well, I mean, I'm I'm playing this like uh, the crazy Ivan from uh, Hunt for Red October. I got a 50-50 chance. <laughs> right. So we, we haven't made you risk much, have we? No, you have not. And I have a 50% <laughs> chance of sounding like a genius. You did. Uh, but you said to the left, didn't you? Yes. He actually looks to the right. See, I'm actually looking at a picture now. He does look to the left. But is it your right or his right? His left. Oh, his left, but he looks to the right as we look at it. I see. So it's his left. So so no matter what answer you had, you could you could argue you were correct. See, and those are the best kinds of arguments to have. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the the uh, the way it used to be was that they would uh when they wanted to see if you were noticing small details in everyday life, people would say, well, we'll list the letters that are on the, uh, the keypad of your phone. Uh, but nobody uses a dial phone that has all those numbers listed anymore. So what's a keypad? <laughs> right. Well, in the olden days, when you didn't have to touch the glass screen, there were actually buttons there that you pressed. Okay. Well, let's go further down this rabbit hole. What's a button? Well, that's a thing you have to press before they had capacitive sense, you know, ah, touch sensing on the, on the screens. Ah, man. The 60s must have been cool. I, w I was asking a, a student the other day about uh, their, one of the design students wanted to do a project with solar energy. And I was asking, you know, well, if you're going to send this outside, how are you going to know how much solar energy you're getting? Uh, and he said, well, they used to have written reports and you could look, you know, you'd get the report and look it up. And I said, well, what do you do these days? And he said, oh, you just look it up online. I said, ah, I remember the days when I had to look up a phone number in the <laughs> yellow pages or the white pages. And they kind of looked at me like, hmm, you are very old. You know what I was thinking about the other day was uh, along the same lines was uh, directions mm -hmm. where you had to use a map. I, but here's the thing. I don't remember using a map all that much. 
which makes me wonder how I got from point A to point B. <laughs> I, I sincerely, like I can't like in the late nineties, early two thousands before smartphones, mm-hmm. early two mid two thousands, I guess as well. Like how I cannot actually remember how like I have friends' houses that I could not possibly imagine having gotten directions to. Mm-hmm. And yet I can kind of navigate by dead reckoning slash as in previous slides would have texted them what's what's your address and let me put it in a Google Maps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there I mean some skills are lost, you know. I I used to be pretty good at you know, telling which direction I was going and just by looking, looking up and, and, uh, looking which direction the road was going, guessing which road I should be going down. Yeah. I'm probably the only driver in the upper Midwest that carried a sextant. So, <laughs> <laughs> and an accurate timepiece. Well, you know, on those cloudy days, it's really not that useful. Ah, uh, you can do pretty well. You can kind of figure out where the sun is. Right. Well, the this uh, talk of pennies and uh, maps and, and sextants is uh, uh, not without purpose. We wanted to talk about a couple of issues that are important to engineers, and those are the uh, skills of noticing, uh, which we're talking about uh, with reference to you know how much detail we rem- remember about our day to day lives, and and listening and questioning. And our guest for this episode is Dr. Dave Goldberg who appeared previously on episodes 37 and 65. And Dave currently leads Three Joy Associates, a consulting firm that advises educational institutions. So Dave, welcome back to the Engineering Commons. It's great to be back uh, on the show, Jeff. Really, uh, actually, I was just noticing a little numerology that almost doubling my episodes gets me to the next one. So what I somewhere around episode, uh, what, 260 or so will be my next one if, if, <laughs> if history holds up here. All right. Well, I hope you wouldn't be too disappointed if we invited you to come on before then. No, I wouldn't be disappointed. I'm just, just, I'm just noticing a pattern. That, that is what engineers do, right? Notice patterns? It's a little bit of what, it's a little bit of what, of what they do. They, I, I think they, uh, they have a tendency to notice certain kinds of patterns and, um, and sometimes, uh, are, are blind to some of the other important patterns in their life. Yeah. Well, so Dave, you have, uh, been an advocate for change in the engineering, in the area of engineering education. Uh, and you've been actively working, uh, to try to make that change happen. And so this, this idea of bundling together these skills of noticing, listening and questioning, uh, I must attribute to you. I wasn't aware of, of this particular set until I ran across some of your writings. Uh, although I do note that, uh, at, in a previous episode, we talked with James Trevelyan, who previously of the University of Western Australia, he's uh, yeah. recently retired mm-hmm. and uh, gone into business for himself. Uh, but he had the areas of listening, seeing and reading, uh, which seemed uh, at least similar in uh, focus. Uh, but so let me ask you, Dave, uh, why are the skills of noticing, listening, and questioning so important for engineers to possess? Well, engineering education, as traditionally conceived, does a great job on the, the technical side of the ledger. And um, you, don't, you don't get into engineering mm-hmm. school, and you certainly don't get out unless you've mastered the basics of uh, calculus of physics of engineering science and and uh, design the part where sometimes 
an engineering education has let engineers down a bit has been on the what we on the side of the ledger that we sometimes call soft skills. And I I hate the term soft skills. And I think we actually in an earlier episode we mm-hmm. we talked about that. But you know the the a lot of a of an engineer's career success depends on yes being technically um, more than competent, but also having the people skills, the the emotional intelligence, and the um, the ability to navigate you know some of the social complexity of the workplace in order to get the job done. And so it's um, and so. But when you talk about soft skills with employers, they, you know, they're, they, they get all, uh, they wax romantic about it. They say, yes, yes, we need this. But then when you ask them what they need, they sort of say, well, mm-hmm. communication. And, and they give you vague answers about what it is they need. Uh, the focusing on NLQ, noticing, listening, questioning is a sharpening of what are the core shift skills or soft skills that an engineer needs upon which all the other soft skills are based. And so that's why I think these are so important. If you, if you master these three, then many of the things that you want to be good at, whether it be conflict management or persuasion or sales or all the, all the, the, the big long list of what we call derivative shift skills that people would like you to master as part of your uh, part of the of your job description are built on top of the noticing, the listening, and the and and the questioning. And so that's that's why we think these three are a good place to start. And interestingly enough, these are the three things that executive coaches get taught right off the bat, like on day one of coach of coach training. This is the stuff mm-hmm. that's focused on, and it's actually my own training as a coach that helped me focus on. Ah, this is the the basis set of of soft skills, if you will. Right. So, one of the things that, um, as I you know observe and think about noticing, it's always emphasized. Yes, you you want to pay attention to the small details, and uh, sometimes the small details are important. But a lot of times, don't you have to throw away the small details to focus on the big stuff? Sure. And actually, I think you know, I think we need to be a little bit careful about um, making assumptions about what it is that noticing is about. Sort of, so so notice. So I think there's okay. a, I think there's an assumption in some of the conversations so far that it is fine details. That um, but actually noticing mm-hmm. um, and and this this actually there's a a story I was. I actually got angry in the first day of my coaching training because we walked into the room and they they said, all right. So we were sitting there talking, blah, 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 introductions. And almost immediately they said, what do you notice? And I got pissed off. I said, what do you mean? What do I notice? I came here to learn some skills and you're asking me to notice. And of course, that was kind of a, <laughs> that, I didn't say that out loud, but that was going through my head. I, I was judging the whole situation. This was like, this is idiotic. What the, what, you know, WTF, what's going on here? And, and I realized, but at, over time, I realized that it was that noticing that was sort of the central skill that I was being taught as a coach. So it's it's not necessarily noticing this, that, or the other thing, but being aware of noticing as as a skill. 
And we have this, you know, so our brains are amazing. Our brains have these different parts. And and what we understand from neuroscience now is that the front of our brains, uh, the frontal cortex is sort of our noticing part of our brain. And people who have strong connections mm-hmm. there uh, through meditation or other practices actually have this ability to be both self-aware and aware of others and aware of more detail than say people who don't exercise that part of the brain. So it's not, it's not necessarily noticing anything in particular. It's noticing, noticing when you need to notice and noticing not just things externally, but things internally. So like if I ask, if I were to ask the, the three of you that same question that I was asked that pissed me off, like, Right now, mm-hmm. what do you notice? What would you tell me? Well, you have to set a problem domain first. No, I just say, I say what, yeah, so that was sort of my WTF <laughs> answer. But what, what do you notice right now? It's a non sequitur. No, not necessarily. So your 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 brain's noticing something. So so actually, what you so what I'm hearing is that you notice that uh, an ill-posed problem. You're yes. thinking about an ill-posed problem. Okay. So that's what you that's what you notice. Jeff? Right. I notice the hum of the speaker yeah. in the background that I know will get edited out later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I notice the uh, uh, the slight tension there in the uh, give and take between you and Brian as you were mm. trying to get nice. him to go in one direction yeah. and he was headed in another yeah. direction. Uh, I I notice some of the stuff, you know, I'm actually as I'm speaking, I'm looking across the room and I see the the words on the book, um, on the bookshelf, but, but, t- but typically in these types of conversations, I, uh, I'm, I'm listening. I am listening, uh, to hear in the sort of the vocal tone, what people, you know, what kind of mood or where they're going with this. Are they speaking with confidence? Are they, are they worried about what they're saying? That sort of thing. And trying to figure out in the back of my mind, how do we, you know, how do we lead the conversation in the right direction? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a summary of your thoughts. Uh, towards the end, that was just a yeah. summary of your thoughts. Correct? Yeah, but in, as his dis- his dis- yep. yeah, his description also contained other things besides thoughts. There was noticing of other people's emotions, and so there was there was noticing of thoughts. There was noticing of emotions. There was noticing of of uh, audio inputs. So there was noticing of body senses senses and. And so sometimes we talk in coaching about the do- three domains. We talk about language, so the thoughts in our head, um, emotion of ourselves and others, as well as uh, body. So what are, you, what are you noticing in body? And so typically an engineer's training focuses largely on, on thoughts and language, but, but this, this kind of broad spectrum noticing and the ability to, to more easily shift from different, from, Different different domains as necessary to other domains is actually uh, is is really is a really a powerful thing, and and it doesn't seem and I think actually one of the the risks of this episode is that you know you say noticing listening questioning check I'm a, a great great noticer great listener great questioner because we we all do those <laughs> things every day. But until you kind of scrutinize, well, what does it mean to really be great at those things and are, in what ways can you improve, it, it's easy to sort of um, think that there's nowhere to go, that you've already got it. You've been doing it for, you know, you've been doing it since you were a child, uh, 
um, since you were born. And, and so there's nowhere to, nowhere to go, but there's actually, there's actually some interesting places to go with it. Would you say a, a maybe a more verbose way of describing noticing would be parsing your sensory input? Uh, it's not just, it's not just out, it's not just out there. Some of it's in inside. So, so like if I, okay. so if I were to, so sometimes, yeah, so sometimes when I'm, I'm working with a new client, I'll, I'll say, uh, I'll, I'll try to elicit what they're feeling. And so typically, you know, uh, feelings are not the bread and butter of engineering training. And so I'll, I'll ask someone, I say, well, okay, so you just described this experience to me when that occurred, what were you feeling? And they'll tell me what they were thinking. And I'll say, no, no, no. I, what I'm really interested in is what what were you what were you feeling at the time? And they'll tell me again what they were thinking. And I'll ask I'll ask also and then I'll give some. So were you were you happy? Were you sad? Were you angry? You know, were you were you enraged? Were you and and then they'll say oh, and then they'll give me a they'll finally give me a feeling word. So there's a there's a sense in which it's it's. It can it can be external. It can be sensory, but it can also be internal. It can be emotional. It can be your. It can be internal in terms of your thoughts, and it can also be about the thoughts and feelings of others. What do you notice about other people's uh, faces and bodies and body? You know, we talk about noticing body language. So, what are you noticing in others? And what are you noticing about other people's affect? What are you noticing about other people's emotions? And so, it's that that's this kind of broad spectrum of awareness about what's going on in your world rather than it being quite so focused on, on what you typically pay attention to that can be so powerful. So, so would you say you're trying to hit kind of a second level on people's personal telemetry? I, I love that as an engineering description of it, but actually that that's actually that sort of, that kind of hits it. Yeah. I mean, so, but it's also, it's, it's, a, it's both telemetry and um, internal state. Okay. My, my my first question with respect to noticing yeah. is how much of it is how much of improving people's noticing is increasing their sensitivity to both what they're feeling, what they're thinking, the things going on around them versus the issues like pareidolia where our brains are constantly lying to us. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's really it could be really easy to make people sensitive to the things that are going around them but it's really difficult to train people to deal with the fact that as much as you know seeing is believing our brain is constantly trying to trick us yeah i and i, I you know i i the this this view of being constantly misled that comes comes to us from a number of sources um and they're great you know, great experiments, the invisible gorilla experiments, um, and, and the, the ways in which, uh, human beings tend to, um, overvalue what they think they perceive or know or learn. You know, we, we, yeah. we yeah. it's, it, you're referring to, and I'm sure we've both seen the same things that like, uh, human witnesses are actually terrible. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, and if anyone's listening, it's, it's basically that human witnesses in law as an example of people reciting with great conviction what they truly believe they have seen are horrendously inaccurate. 
So sorry. No, no, no. I, I, just... I think I, I think that's right. And 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 I mean, and there's and there's you know there's good evidence and um, you know so the memory is constructive in a way. It's not like computer memory. Um, there you know the uh, there's, exactly. There's 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 all kinds of current understanding of how we process information that that helps shape our understanding of these things. And I think, um, and none of what I'm talking about disputes any of that. Having said that, these, this, the, our senses and our ability to process them are what we walk around with. And, and that's what we got. And to the extent that we can make ourselves more sensitive to things as we need them, the more accurate we can be. And it's actually less about, maybe in some sense, it's less about accuracy. The more that we can have the information that we're receiving um, serve the decisions that processes that we're, um, that we're making in, in, um, and, and moreover, there's this nice uh, quote that I, I, I use and other coaches use in, in, in training, a lot of us are in our, our lives are trying to improve and make changes in our lives and trying to mm-hmm. get better. And there's this nice uh, quote by R.D. Lang, who was a psychiatrist in the last century, a Scottish uh, psychiatrist. And he said, and, it, and it, it's kind of a British word game, but it's kind of a nice word game. And it sort of, I think, gets to some of the key reasons why Noticing is so important for us. The The range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we Ooh. fail to notice that we fail to notice, there is little we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. And so there's a sense that noticing gives us a way into understanding um, the story that we're in. And actually the connection with stories is a, is one that we may want to explore a little bit later, but essentially uh, some psychiatrists and psychologists understand that we oftentimes in our daily lives are in a story about what our life is. We're in a we're in habitual behaviors. We do these things routinely and that helps us kind of get through the day in an orderly sort of way in a predict in a, if our, if our days are predictable and so forth. But it's, but it's that kind of, um, being in that kind of a rut is we're going to be stuck there until we notice that we're in a particular story and a set of habits about our day. If we want to make changes, we have to notice that we're in that story. And when we notice that we go, Oh, can one of the possibilities is that we can actually change that story and change the narrative that we're in. So kind of, I think of it. And, and actually this is part, a lot of what coaches do with their clients is they help help them understand the stories that they're in. Actually, I remember an early client and she was telling me a, um, she was telling me about a relationship with a loved one and, and, um, and, and they were clearly, it was problematic. And I, I, I said, Oh, you know, that's such an interesting story. And she got really pissed off at me. And she said, Dave, that's not a story. That's the truth. (laughs) <laughs> and we feel that way about our stories. You know, that we, our story is in some sense our truth. That's the, that's sort of, and our stories are our friends in a way, even if the, our stories aren't serving us. And until we kind of notice the loops that we're in and the things that we do, um, there is little we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. When you're referring <laughs> to stories, are you referring to like uh... – 
like super like uh superimposing like uh archetypal narratives to our own experiences it, it and it's, it's not superimposed that they're kind of but but many of the stories that we assume kind of have have uh those kinds of structures oftentimes we can find we can find common themes um themes that others have lived through as as well but it's not it's it's not um kind of the the word superimposed is the where it might might differ we just we we so okay so uh probably every the four of us on this show have a story about about uh being engineers and being good engineers and what that means and um and and you need to be a little careful sometimes the, especially for engineers the word story has the kind of maybe narrative is a better uh, a, a better word yes yeah, stories Stories might be falsehoods. Well, they can be. I for for um, all. Uh, once you examine the the content of our stories, you realize that. Um, and actually, that's a piece that we might want to talk about as well: is how what parts of our story actually have observable, repeatable facts in them, and what parts of our stories have interpretation. And in our stories or narratives are are uh, interpretation rich and and fact or object objectivity uh, poor almost almost mm -hmm. almost without exception and so once you accept that then the use of stories even in the pejorative sense isn't actually a, uh, a problem because okay. our, our stories really do have almost yeah you know, so there are often um, many interpretations in our stories that could be changed and could be changed in a way that would actually serve us better <laughs> I've got an example of that that might I'm speaking abstractly and this is this is stuff where some good solid examples might might work. And I don't think he'll mind my my sharing this example cuz he's uh, shared it on on air before but I I teach some of this material with Mark Somerville uh, my co-author on on a whole new engineer and sometimes when we get to part, the part of, about talking about narrative and story he talks about one of his own stories, and um, one of the stories that he, that he had was a about his wife, and and um, his his wife would kind of do crazy things with recipes. She wouldn't exactly follow them, or in, in keeping bees in the yard, she would do crazy things, and the bees wouldn't actually live; they they die. Or she would do crazy things with flowers, and trying trying different ways of raising the flowers, and many of them would die. And Mark, this drove Mark crazy. It just drove him completely nuts. He's like, well, why don't you follow the directions? We know how to keep bees and make flowers and, and, and do recipes. And he just couldn't understand it. And then he, he realized that, you know, he, it was part of the problem. His, his unhappiness resulted from the story he was telling about his wife. And he said, you know, I've, I've married an experimental housewife. And as soon as he changed that story, it gave him a lot of internal peace because, and, and he realized that she got great pleasure out of these experiments, whether they worked or not. And that wasn't him, but it was okay for her. And, and, and he stopped being as, as judgmental and in many ways was helpful to his marriage. That's a small example, but, but it was his interpretation of what she was doing that was problematic for his emotional response. And it's, that's often the case. There's often, there's often some interpretation that um, that we can make that either um, makes us happier or 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 actually gives us different actions that we can take that are much more helpful to us. So it's 
it's it's pretty concrete stuff and and surprisingly once we understand sort of the structure of our stories and understand that we're in a story um then you start when you when you get to that point you start you start doing things like journaling and saying, well, what story am I in right now? And why am I so, and why am I so upset right now? And you realize there's probably some interpretation or a set of interpretations or a cluster of interpretations that's kind of leading you down, um, down a path that's not kind of emotionally productive for you. And you go, okay, well, how it's actually a form. I, I now view it as a form of narrative engineering as sort of, well, how can I construct a story that comports with the actual facts and, gives me a, an emotional response and and a possibility possibilities for action in my life that are actually more positive and and remarkably it 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 uh, it sounds strange i know to engineering ears but when you when you do that you can actually kind of uh, open up open up possibilities um, in your life that 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 lead in different different pathways because you've changed um, changed this narrative yeah. So in the engineering tradition, right, we, you know, as I think about this, I want to break it down into sub pieces and, and uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to delve too, too deep into the, uh, the theory, right? But you can't, but you can't, it's actually cool. You, you, yeah, you can. But it seems to me there's, there's something to be said about we have an, a, an awareness, you know, we're in a situation, we have some awareness that there's an emotion or there's an, you know, we can, uh, I think you describe it as being a mini me. We can sort of yeah. stand back and we can see, Almost as we stand on the other side of the rooms and during the conversation we that we're having with someone else or the interaction, we can sort of stand back and see ourselves having that interaction. And, and so – but before you can – you know, you talked about interpretation. Before you can do that, you must have some awareness that um, – well, you have to be aware that you have that emotion. Yeah. Then you can observe the emotion. And then I, th- I, and then I think you were just talking about interpreting the emotion. What, what does that – what does that mean? And what finally, once you've gotten through that, then you can take some action to try to change your emotional state or reinterpret your emotional state uh, to improve your situation. Yeah. Well, and actually, I, I, uh, Jeff, I love the way you said that. And actually, I'm actually curious if you guys have ever had one of these experiences where you had kind of, for whatever reason, this, the kind of mini media experience where you sort of, eat, and some people, different people use different metaphors for this, but um, when you're when your medial prefrontal cortex is kicking in, there's this can uh, strongly, there can be this sense of kind of looking, um, Heifetz uses the metaphor of the dance floor that we go to the balcony and look, you know, so we're in the world and we're on the dance floor. But when you have this sort of ex- mini me experience where you're kind of looking down on yourself in the world that you get kind of a perspective from a distance where you get kind of a clarity about something that allows you to have an insight and do something different. And I'm just actually curious whether, you know, and any of you can recall a, a time, sometimes, a, sometimes this happens at important junctures in your life where you, you get sort of clarity about the situation you're in that you haven't had before. And it allows you to do something different in your life. I'm wondering if, if any of you have had, can think it, it, you, you may have had it and may not be able to recall. Cause I've just asked you to recall it, but um, I wonder if any of you have had an experience like that that you can can share. I can't remember the last time I had a whole lot of clarity about anything. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. I don't know if this is quite that moment, but I do remember it at one point in um, my career. The the employer I was with uh, had us taking these personality tests 
uh, yeah. in, in an attempt to, uh, I think, uh, foster a little bit of, uh, more understanding of ourselves. Yeah. Um, and they, they came back with results and they started listening and I, and I can't remember which, which one, but, uh, this, this particular test had like dominant and, uh, there was C for being, I don't know, there's C for paying a lot of attention and there was a different yeah. one for getting along and the, there were the eyes and the eyes were the, I can't remember, interactive or something interpersonal, yeah. something. And they were describing these people that had to talk and interact to solve their problems. And this was very important to them. And I listened to that dis- description and I thought, that explains a lot to me because I thought these people actually had some sort of mental problem. You know, the, the, mm. I, you know, I'm, I'm more the typical engineer. I'm introverted. I, I want to sit there, be my, myself, work, you know, solve this problem out. And all these people that needed to come up and talk and socialize to figure things out, that explained a lot because I thought there was just something wrong with them. Mm. Nice. And, 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 and I guess, you know, there are different ways we can, view that experience through the lenses that we're talking about. But there were, so there was this, this sense that the, how you viewed the world before that understanding was different and, and how you then viewed those people afterwards, you probably were still found their need to talk all the time annoying, but at least you you had a different understanding of it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. And it was, it explained, actually helped, helped me. It, I, yeah. I rated very high on both dominance and compliance, uh, which are two that are mm. typically at the opposite ends and explained a lot to me about my situation where, uh, I wanted things to be right. I wanted them to be in order. I wanted them to make sense. I wanted it to be logical. Uh, but at the same yeah. time, it was by God, I was the one that was going to enforce that as well. I was going to make sure everybody else did it the, the right way. Uh, and, and, uh, a, a lot, yeah, a lot of the inner struggles, uh, internal struggles that I had trying to be both compliant, uh, or, or, or enforcing compliance yes. and being dominant at the same time, uh, it explained a lot, uh, for me, uh, just because I always felt I was constantly dancing back and forth between these, these two, uh, polarities that, that there was no, you know, where, where was the middle yeah. ground? I never felt like there was a comfortable, yeah. comfortable middle, middle ground. Cause I was always intention trying to balance these two, uh, uh, these two issues. Yeah. Nice. And, and actually, you know, this, one of the uh, core model in, in how noticing links to the actions we take in life is, is called the OAR model. And so the O is the observer we are, and A is the actions we take, and R are the results we get in the world. And you know, when we we see the world, things come in. We we also we think about the things that come in. um, We process the things that come in, and and we take action, and we get results. Sometimes when when the results that we get are not what we want, our our first response is to say, change the action. Because we, we're under constant approaches to seeing, we we still have the same distinctions that we make, but but we we try to change the the action that we take to, in hopes of getting another result. Now sometimes that works, and all's well and good. That's sometimes called first order learning, and then then sometimes we change the results, and when nothing nothing better happens, and we realize, well, maybe there's a different way to look at this, or maybe. Like in the case of the of the testing that you got, somebody mm-hmm. gives us a distinction that 
adds to our database of how to look at the world. So you were a different observer in that case once you got the results from your personality test. And that gave you that seeing the world differently gave you the possibility for different actions in your life, which gave you different results in your life. And so um, and sometimes we make the sometimes we change the observer ourselves or sometimes we get other distinctions um, and different ways to think about things that are helpful to us. Either way, those give us the possibility for different actions and different different results that wouldn't have resulted from just seeing um, seeing the world in the same way that we had been seeing. So this this kind of, so the growth through noticing is um, is is kind of the addition to our database of how we see the world, and we see the world in more complex ways. We're able to parse it in different ways, and we're able to then take, but not for the purposes of say abstract understanding, but for the purposes of different actions and results in our in our lives. Yeah. So this entire area of noticing. Do you make any distinction between this and the topic of mindfulness? So they're they're um, um, they're they're re- they're related, and so mm-hmm. and and I um, so and a lot is a lot is just you know, the mindfulness is a a word on our minds these days. So a lot of people are talking about mindfulness, um, and I. I've had different different people object to the use of the term, or it can be defined in different ways. I don't want to get stuck in any any of that. But um, I, I think one of the when um, there's some nice work in uh, California that I like. Uh, Dan Siegel's work um, wrote a nice book on called Mindsight, mm-hmm. and and there are a lot of a lot of work on um, trying to you know, a lot of uh, physiological work. So, for example, people who have regular meditation practices. We now can do fMRI studies of their brains and we find out, oh, they've actually got more connections in this part of our brain, this prefrontal cortex area uh, of, of the brain. And, and, and part of what they're getting from that is they're exercising, they're kind of noticing part of their brain more. And so just like a muscle, it's getting stronger and, um, and they become more aware, but, but one of the most interesting things is, and, and is be, when you have more connections there, this can happen faster. And this is especially important in situations where we might uh, have an emotional reaction to something, possibly a breakdown, or uh, we might get angry at someone. I, there's about a quarter of a second be, be, as things are welling up in our minds, uh, be, uh, to actually do something about it. And people that have these 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 strong connections in this part of the brain can actually in real time sort of get a handle on it and get control of it and so that it's not an abstraction it's actually something that um um that can that can serve us in in difficult situations you know you say well you want to have you want to have emotional control this is actually what is it off? usually emotional control is about repressing emotion and pretending that it doesn't exist but actually, um, this kind of emotional control where ah, you're aware of the emotion and you can do something in it before the emotion breaks out into actual behavior is, is a real practical, um, practical thing that can come from this kind of work. So as engineers, we like to get into what we call the flow where, you know, we get into it in 15 minutes of thinking yeah. we're into it. You know, usually it's, I don't think of it as being an emotion, but it's a happy, you know, it's a good state. It's a, it's a comfortable state 
that sure. I'm happy to stay in for yeah. uh, long periods of time. Uh, and I'm just wondering whether your opinion is whether this mindfulness or this noticing has anything to do with that situation, because usually I'm in my brain in that in that situation, or whether it's much more useful in things like interpersonal interactions where I'm having to respond or something unexpected happens and I need to hold my anger, uh, or or, or is, what, what's your opinion there? Well, so again, this goes to, you know, what is, you know, to the earlier questions about, well, what is, what is noticing good for? And it's, it's mm -hmm. basically that part of the brain kind of is direct, is, it's the sometimes called the executive part of the brain. And it's kind of, it's kind of coordinating a lot of activity, um, all over your brain. And so what is it good for? Well, it's good for, our higher order thoughts. It's good for our emotions. It's good for our body responses. And so it's kind of all going through the switchboard. And so it's, it can be good for all of these things if we've got the connections to support it. So you, you described sort of a well, um, a well-traveled pathway in your brain to where kind of a, a state of well-being comes over you in kind of reflecting and thinking about problem solving and, and, and engineering, um, engineering design and so forth. Well, mm -hmm. um, that can, that can serve us, that can serve us elsewhere. If we, um, if we, if we practice it, if we, if we use if you know, it's use it or lose it or use it or not use it or not have it. Um, right. as, as we, as we, as we practice those things in, in whatever it is that we're interested in, in doing it, it gets, it gets better when, when we, when we teach and sometimes we think, oh, well, I don't have time to, you know, become study 14 flavors of yoga and sit still for, <laughs> you know, there's, it can be a lot of um, judgments about this, but I, we do an exercise and it uh, could be, we could do it here because it doesn't take that long of a simple breathing exercise, a simple exercise in, in mindful breathing. Mm -hmm. Um and I actually, if you're game, why don't, uh, well, it's, it's, uh, it's not unethical or immoral or even very hard. So <laughs> why don't we try it together here on sure. the air? It, it will take us about 15 seconds. Yeah. Okay. So the exercise, the exercise we do in, in, in class is just the following. So what we're going to do is we're going to take three deep breaths together. Okay. And if you have a meditation practice and breathe in a particular way, that's fine. If you don't just just kind of breathe uh, deeply with me. I'm going to kind of kind of breathe in and breathe out. And but as we do this, before we do it, I want you to sort of notice your your brain state before we take the three deep breaths. And then I want you to notice after we sort of stop the exercise, what your brain state is after the uh, the exercise. Is it is it clear what I'm going to ask you to do here in a second? Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's go ahead. And so let's, um, we're going to start breathing together and let's, so let's, uh, let's inhale. Exhale. Let's inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Breathe normally. And there's there's no right answer to this, and and the exercise affects different people differently. But I'm 
I'm wondering what you noticed about your brain state before the three deep breaths and then afterward. Well, so I noticed that, uh, you know, I had pretty much the general busy mind that I do when we have one of these podcasts going and that I'm trying to uh, see, you know, uh, what we've got going on and and, uh, listen. And uh, my brain is pretty busy. Uh, What I noticed on the second inhale was I was gone. I was someplace else. You know, it, it, it was, it was like all that had, had left and I wasn't even aware of my breathing at that point. By the second exhale, I was back aware of the breathing again. Uh, and then on the third exhale, I was, I was thinking about the fact that that was so neat that I had, I had so quickly, like, you know, like switching off a light was gone someplace else. Yeah. I, I, I personally just, I kind of had that moment before we even started the podcast where I left problem solving mode for the day. So to me, it was just a continuation of looking at the ducks in the pond earlier. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My experience was very, very similar to Jeff's, um, just kind of the busy mind of the podcast. And then, nope, done. One thing on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not so interesting. You know, no, you know, no special exercise. You don't need yoga pants. You don't need uh, <laughs> a mat. You don't need uh, an instructor. It's just to be, to be mindful about breathing can take you to this other other place. And when we did this in coaching class, I said, oh, that's interesting. And I found an application. I, I don't know if any of you are like this. Sometimes when I'm waiting in line at Panera or someplace, I get really, I don't have, you know, my brain starts going, I don't have time for this. I'm too busy, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of telling myself this, I'm too busy story. And I reframed standing in line. I said, the universe, now I stand in line and I'm almost, almost always remember to tell myself the different story that the universe has just given me a moment to pause. Sometimes we call that a pause practice and I'll, and I'll breathe intentionally. Sometimes I'll close my eyes in line and breathe. And instead of having the story, I'm too busy, I'm late and whatever I get to the, I can take myself to this calmer place just by, just by breathing. And, and, and actually you can use that if you're in conflict, you can use that anywhere. Just, uh, just be intentional around taking, and you don't need three. Just take one deep breath and you can be in a different place. Comment. Well, I, I've been aware of this for some time. I will say, though, that I rarely think <laughs> to do it when I'm in a situation where it would be yeah. useful. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you think – and actually, all of these things are sort of like that. If you, it's a, you're, if you can increase your intention, or you may be aware of them. You may actually know many of the things that we're talking about here, but if you can if you can think of them as part of your toolkit, part of your practices, and think about it, well, I'm going to have greater intentionality around doing this thing to have a different result in my life. You can um, interesting interesting things can happen from that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I'll mention we. I think we're going to stay away from the whole topic of, of, or diving too deep into the topic of meditation because that can become a, a topic unto itself, which is, is part of this, uh, mindfulness, uh, area. But, uh, uh in preparation for this episode, I came aqua- across any number of articles talking about how meditation was, uh, being, uh, taken on by yeah. companies in Silicon Valley, you know, Google and Intel and, and any number of companies out in the, uh, Bay Area that, uh, were encouraging their employees to, uh, practice meditation. Yeah. Well, uh, Meng Tan at, uh, at Google is probably the most famous. And there's actually a, a fairly popular 
um, executive course in search. He wrote a book called Search Inside Yourself uh, for practices that they they do use at Google. And and now this has become quite popular uh, where I went to coaching school offers it uh, at Georgetown offers it at least once or twice a year. And you can find it or you can find it in a city near near you and 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 I would I would say it's sort of a practical view of this kind of awareness applied um applied to the applied to the workplace especially right and the the good news is you can do it in the morning and no one has to know that you're into this into this uh hippie stuff <laughs> well and yeah I I guess that I guess that's right you know so when we do these things and it's interesting when we do this stuff in class we oftentimes get the reaction the the WTF reaction of what's this about and why are we doing it and then but after you spend time in an environment like that you go that actually felt pretty good and people uh, want more of it but of course the 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 norms of the workplace are such that it's it's all about thinking. It's not so much about feeling or or body practice. Yeah, and that's actually a, another whole area. To what extent, um, you know, we're in our heads so much. Um, this kind of being mindful of things other than our thoughts, of our emotions, as well as our body feelings, is interesting. One of the things they had us do in coach training was take on a body practice to be to do something with our bodies. So that could be. Um, martial arts, uh, it could be, um, um, it could, could be yoga, it could be anyway, something like weight training or it, 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 it and as, as long as there was some, um, some way in which you were using your body, most people did it in connection with something that was, uh, that also had kind of a ni- mindfulness component. So a lot of people went towards, uh, yoga or, or Tai Chi, um, um, and so things like that, but it wasn't restricted to that. So there's a, so there's a and many actually many of us in our regular so those of us who have been runners or regular exercises find a certain piece in those practices uh, even though we might not label it that way um, those moments can be special moments because they're so different than us being in our being in our um, cognitive brains all the time. Right. Okay. Well, we've we've uh, we've given a, uh, a good amount of time here to uh, the notion of noticing. Uh, perhaps we should move on to the idea of listening uh, again. I guess I'll start out with why is listening so important for engineers? Again, I'm going to give I'm going to give sort of the same answer for all three of these. That together, <laughs> the noticing, the listening, and the questioning form form a core, um, like a basis set. So if you have the kind mm-hmm. of the noticing, if you've exercised the noticing part of your brain and you've trained yourself to listen differently and you've trained yourself to ask more powerful questions, if you put the three of those things together, um, that's like, a, that's a foundation for all the other soft skills. So, for example, if you want to, um, I, I had this experience in taking um, uh, Harvard um, has uh, connected with their law school has this wonderful course in negotiation. It's a three day course, and um, mm-hmm. I went to it, um, and and uh, some time ago, but it was after my coach training, and I got partnered with a, um, I got partnered with a. 
a hedge fund guy. And we just, mm -hmm. we just cleaned up in the simulations. And some of it was the noticing, listening and questioning that I was doing together with his kind of, his kind of hard nosed ruthlessness was like this, this incredibly powerful, um, uh, negotiating, um, piece. And, and mm -hmm. so say negotiating is just one example. You say you want to be better at persuasion or, or, uh, or selling same thing. To what extent can you really listen to people and notice what, where they're coming from and ask them powerful questions that elicit what they're really thinking about? Um, you can be better at persuasion. Um, you, we, they, we blanket say, well, we'd like to communicate better. We'd like people to get better presentations and write better reports. To what extent are you noticing what your client is really wanting? To what extent are you asking them questions about what they want in the report? To what extent are, are you, um, are you listening to their responses in a way that is then responsive in the report or the presentation you make? It's all the things that we say that we want as part of the non-technical important skill set that, um, that we call soft skills depend, they, they, they all go back to NL, LQ as a basis. And so, so listening sort of listening is, um, and, and listening, we usually think of listening to others, but there's also a sense of listening to ourselves that is actually quite powerful. But 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 it's easier to talk about in terms of traditional listening to to others. And so mm -hmm. so how to how to how to distinguish. So what what is this um, this deeper kind of you know again listening? Oh yeah, got it. Check you know you you, and you say NLQ and people go <laughs> check check check. But but but. Um, in coaching, the dis they, they made the distinction between level one listening and level two listening that I thought was quite powerful. And, the, and we did many exercises around, around understanding how to listen in a, in a much deeper kind of, kind of way that was, that was very, was very powerful and, and, um, um, really, well, op certainly is, is part of a coach's skill set, but I think for many people would open up possibilities in in their lives as well mm -hmm. right so uh can you explain more about these these levels of listening yeah so and 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 so the level one listening is is i i call it cocktail party listening is easy way to understand and it's not neither of these is bad almost all conversations have have level one and level two kinds of listening in them but level one listening is the is the kind of listening where you're where someone says something and you immediately go, well, what does that mean to me? The important part is not so much what they said, but how do I react to or interact with what they just said? That's level one. Mm -hmm. And so somebody says, oh, I went to New York. Oh, yeah, three weeks ago, I went to Manhattan. That was great. Um, and it's not bad. And actually, a lot of cocktail parties are driven by this kind of listening, and it can be very satisfying. People sort of sharing common experiences and so forth. So that's level one. Level level two is where you're listening to the other person to understand what they mean on their own terms. Mm -hmm. And so somebody says, um, oh, I, I've got this, uh, I got this real asshole for a boss. <laughs> and, well, okay. So there are different flavors of, of, 
a-hole. So what, what do you, so what do you mean by that? So, so a typical, a level two listener wouldn't assume that they know, um, or wouldn't assume it was, so a level one listener would say, Oh yeah, I've, I've had, uh, I've had many jerks for bosses in my career. A level one listener or level two listener would say, well, well, tell me the ways in which this, this person's disturbing you or, or, and go deeper. Uh, and so oftentimes a level two listener will ask a question about the terms that the person's using to make sure that the terms that you're understanding that the terms that the person's using, not in a generic sense, but in the sense that they intend. So you're listening to the distinctions the person makes on their own terms to understand more deeply what it is that the person's really thinking. And in that, so, mm-hmm. so you've got this kind of level one where you're thinking, what does this mean to me? And level two, where you're thinking to understand the other. Again, neither one's right or wrong. The one that we, as a, uh, that we tend, you know, different, and different people have strengths of uh, being different types of listeners. And, um, but te- the tendency is to have kind of a, a, a background level one. And the people tend to, when they get this kind of training, go de- a little deeper in their ability to do level, level two is, is my experience. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the distinction, and again, um, these distinctions again are not good or bad. They are what's appropriate to the situation I'm in. What will what will help get a good outcome or good you know observer action result? What will give me better possibilities for action and better results um, in what I'm trying to do right now? Depending on how I I, I listen, and and so um, and of course coaching is all about level two listening. You're, you're trying to be helpful to another person. So you're really trying to understand what they mean. And, and, um, and a lot of, a lot of coaching is about understanding people saying one thing and doing another. So trying to understand some of the anomalies and, and, and lack of coherence in the person's story and not judge it, but kind of present it back to the person. Well, I noticed you said this and you're doing this. Tell me about that. That's interesting. Um, um, how do you think now that you notice that? What do you, what do you think about it? And and so uh, their their possibilities and kind of refining their story or understanding inconsistencies in the story that may be causing them trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and do you draw any distinction between this idea of noticing and separating that from what's being heard? I, I mean, I can think of sitting there with with say a, a uh, you know a marketing manager who's trying to tell you that you know you have to meet a certain spec. Uh, and, and the first thing that, you know, at level one might be, well, what does that mean to me? Oh no, this is, I can't do this or I don't have enough money or time, that sort of thing. But if you're saying, okay, I'm going to listen a little deeper, then aren't you checking lots of things? You know, you listen to the tone of voice, which I guess is the hearing, but you're, you're checking body language. You're, you're reviewing past actions. Does it, does what the person's saying right now match up with past actions? That sort of thing is listening just a, a different part of noticing, or is it something separate here? No, and again, they, we, we sort of talk about them separately, but but uh, as you're, you know, they're interacting with each other. As you're part of your your noticing is noticing those things, and those things then lead you to how you're listening, as well as um, um, then also how you might the kinds of if you want to go deeper in listening, 
there's less of telling your story and more asking questions of the other person to understand their story. So the other part that interacts strongly with this, once you're in the listening mode, you're actually actually also in the questioning mode. Um, and you're so you're right. asking questions that are sort of trying to elicit in an unbiased kind of way. What is this person really thinking? What do they really want? What is their, what's their, you know, in a business context, what is their bottom line? What is it that, you know, how, how do they even dimensionalize the problem? A marketing person is going to think about, uh, say, a, a design problem in a much different way than an engineer. So how are they slicing it up um, and trying to understand how they think about it? And so that mm -hmm. you can kind of think of it from an engineering perspective and match what you're thinking with what they're thinking in a way that might uh, be valuable to the to the organization. So. Um, but but you're right. The the noticing's kicking in, and the way that you continue and going deeper in the listening is through through asking. Um, so we will ask a combination of information gathering questions. So you'll ask them, well, what are the facts? Tell me the specs. Yada yada yada. But then in terms of getting mm -hmm. at the person's motives or their bottom line or what it, what's really behind the story that will help you, say, in a nego you're negotiating a, a change to the spec or whatever it is that you're doing, to understand that you need to kind of go deeper. So you'll ask, um, you'll tend to ask open-ended questions that, that sort of mm -hmm. let the person kind of express themselves. And as opposed to, right. so like if you, you ask somebody, well, what, um, uh, is is it yes yes or no they'll tell you yes or no or refuse to answer but um a lot of times you can get a powerful question or an open-ended question by starting with the word what okay so in what ways um in what ways can um what other ways can we think of this in what ways are you thinking of this right now uh, yeah. and 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 there's 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 a lack of bias and an openness to that and actually, what is much better than why? And in quality methods, we use the five whys to kind of get to root causes. But when you're trying to get people to respond openly, why put, can put them on the defensive and get them to a place of, of um, responding defensively or not at all? It's like, oh, well, he thinks that I've done something that's bad and is judging me, so I'm going to shut down. But when you ask, you ask mm -hmm. in some ways the same question beginning with a what, it can elicit a more open, a more open response. Mm -hmm. and, and in many cases, is it not just a matter of, of uh, spending some time trying to, you know, develop the relationship with these, with these questions? You know, I, I think about it sort of like a, um, you know, you, you mentioned the cocktail party, but I think even if you're yeah. at a cocktail party and you want to have something beyond, hi, how are you? Why are yeah. you here? Who do you know? That sort of thing. It, it, it's it's just the most casual conversation. Oh yeah, I was out walking my dog. Oh, you like dogs? What kind of? Tell me, what kind of dog do you have? How did yeah. you get involved with that breed? You know, whatever it is, uh, it, it's not so much. Uh, I always thought. I, I guess when I was young, I thought that this idea of of being good in conversation or having good questions meant that you had to just know everything, right? You had to be prepared for any situation. Uh, and it wasn't until later in life that I discovered you didn't have the best way to, was to know nothing at all. Just exactly, you know, in a caring yeah. way, just a, just ask the person to explain more. And most people enjoy once you get them on a topic they enjoy talking about. They enjoy talking about it. Yes, and yeah, and so I think there is a sense, that, you know, that a lot, you know a lot of people have that experience of coming to that understanding. 
about the power of questions, but but there's also the part that's that's um, the power of being listened to is actually mm-hmm. maybe a little less well understood. So we, yes, we can get uh, I think uh, you know early self help books like Dale Carnegie's uh, uh, Winning Friends and Influencing People talked to, talked about mm-hmm. things like this, and so very early self-help books had this, had this idea, but there, there's a growing sophistication about the ways in which our brains work. And um, I had uh, Mark Goulston on, on my show not that long ago, and Mark's written a number of books about managing difficult people. But one of his, um, one of his um, early books was called Just Listen. And, and Mark has worked with the FBI and other law enforcement agencies on talking people down from hostage situations. Yeah, so you can imagine right. a difficult situation where um, um, you, where listening is kind of super super important. And um, part of what he part of what he does is he sort of uh, tries to get the person to break through this terrible thing that they've they've done and 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 try to empathize with them. And and um, but that's that's so powerful when people actually are listening to us. And I I, I think of my job as a coach to be present, fully present to the person and really listen to them deeply and, and understand them. And, and I'll, I'll repeat back to them what I heard them say. Um, and sometimes it's important for me to ask a question. Sometimes it's important for me to make an assessment that helps them have an insight. But the, I'd say the most important part is actually just really being there and listening. And, and that uh, Mark calls it the, um, the importance of feeling felt. And he's also called it a mirror neuron deficit disorder that because we're all so busy, we're not really listening to each other in this deep way. And we all sort of have a deficit of not being listened to enough. And so that's actually Hmm. one of the things that I think one of the reasons why coaching's become uh, so popular is you can pay someone and they can listen to you this way. And it feels so great um, (laughs) to be listened to deeply. And, and, uh, but, um, but it's certainly, you know, that I think it carry can carry over into business more generally if we if we just kind of um, actually care about listening to each other and being present to each other in this way. It can create a more, as you say, it can create a more powerful relationship between us and create a. We talk a lot about teamworks, uh, teamwork and collaboration these days. Great teamwork and great collaboration is built on these relationships, which um, hopefully over enough co- time comes from from some sort of listening to to the other members of the team. Interesting. Interesting. So we've, we've covered noticing, listening and questioning. Uh, and so we should uh, probably think about wrapping this up and, and letting you go, Dave. But before we do, I I'd like to ask about big beacon. Big beacon is uh, an associate of ours and uh, we're happy to uh, promote the, uh, your effort to, uh, Change engineering education. Can you tell us a little bit about what's the latest with the uh, Big Beacon? Yeah, it's uh, got some pretty exciting news this year. So over the last uh, couple of years, we've been working to build uh, three networks. We've been built what's called uh, Educational Innovator as Working Group or EIWG. Um, the Innovators Across Boundaries uh, is a group of consultants and thought leaders that help educators make change. 
And then um, mm-hmm. Students for a Whole New Education is a network of students that are interested in promoting change at their institutions. And and this um, this June, the 21st through the 23rd of June, um, that's a Wednesday through a Friday, we're going to get together at Lehigh University at one of our EIWG members, uh, the Mountaintop Program, really interesting summer program at Lehigh University, and we're going to have a a three day unconference, uh, educational innovate, uh, educational transformers unconference, where we bring together people from these networks as well as other like minded and and like hearted people trying to make change, not just in engineering education. We've been joined by um, uh, there's a medical campus uh, at Penn State that's uh, part of our group, and and people on liberal education that are part of the group, and so we're going to get together and have a series of uh, experiences and interactions and conversations about how to bring about these kinds of uh, transformations and, and uh, as our, as our next step. So I'd say that's kind of, that's kind of the, uh, the formation of these, uh, these, these three networks and um, their growth as well as their coming together for the first time in person at the um, unconference this summer is the big news uh, around big beacon right now. Neat. It sounds like your uh, your efforts are branching out uh, beyond engineering education. If you're dealing with uh, liberal arts and uh, medical institutions, uh, a little bit. I, 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 um, we're you know we're mainly interested in in learning. The network is really about people supporting each other and learning from each other. I guess uh, uh, some of the other you know uh, news from the network is we've started a series of uh, webinars. Um, for people to learn about some of the different, um, learn about things like NLQ and learn about how coaching ideas can be helpful in educational change. But we've also been working um, to um, uh, promote what we call learning action teams where people um, get together and learn from each other as well as um, drop-in coaching where people come to bring their bring their difficulties or, or challenges um, in a group setting and and work with uh, some of the coaches that we have affiliated with Big Beacon to try to work through some of those problems. So we, I th- I'd say we become a little bit more, uh, more activist and, and we are, and we are branching out, but our, our the main core of our members membership is, um, is still engineering, but actually engineering from around the world. So we have members um, in uh, Chile and, and uh, Brazil, two members in Brazil. We have members from Singapore um uh, members in in Europe and the UK and the Netherlands and and uh, the United States and Canada. So we've um, so we've got kind of a growing circle of people interested in making the 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 kinds of changes that are um, aspired to by the Big Beacon Manifesto and and the book A Whole New Engineer. Fantastic. And I guess another piece of another piece of news is A Whole New Engineer is uh, what we're now in our third full year and. Uh, over over eight thousand copies in distribution, deans and department heads walking around campuses saying we should do this here, and people actually trying to do it. So we're really happy about some of the ways in which the book has has uh, helped uh, change the conversation. That's great news. I I know that it was uh, quite a struggle to get the uh, the book out uh, that you toiled away on that for quite a while. So I'm glad it's having the uh, the desired effect. Yeah, thanks for that. Also thinking about kind of thinking about a new book um, uh, on, oh, really? on these shifts on these shift skills, but 
sort of trying to uh, kind of working out whether we're going to self-publish, uh, whether we're going to um, uh, get a ghostwriter. Some of the in the some of the early stages of what a what a book on shift skills might might be about more generally. Fantastic. If you come up with the book, uh, let us know. We'll have you back to talk about the book. <laughs> <laughs> that might be more like at episode 260 or so at, at, at the rate that we're going. But and we'll, anyways, we'll keep you posted. All right. Well, we'll pencil you in for that episode and, and give you something to work for. <laughs> yep. Thanks. All right. Well, so if any of our listeners should uh, want to contact you, Dave, well, what, where should we direct them? Yeah. So, um, they should, they can, uh, if they want to want information about Big Beacon, go to bigbeacon.org. If they want information about consulting or coaching, go to threejoy.com. And if they want information about a whole new engineer, go to wholenewengineer.org. And uh, if, if they want to contact me uh, directly about any of this, just write to me at deg511 at gmail.com and, and um, I'll respond to them. Fantastic. Well, it's been a delight uh, speaking with you, Dave, and uh, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. It's been it's been great being on the show again. Thank, I appreciate uh, your motley crew uh, putting up with my crazy questions about noticing, listening, <laughs> and questioning. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right. Have a great evening. Okay, thanks. Right, Dave. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>